from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Eh. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... When you have a Polish mother and a Brazilian father who meet in an Esperanto conference, and Esperanto is the language of their home, and the kids grow up as native speakers. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. We've just celebrated Martin Luther King Day, and while Dr. King is known for a lot of things, watching TV isn't one of them. I went to an NAACP fundraiser, and one of the promoters came over to me and said, Miss Nichols, there's someone who would like to meet you. He says he is your greatest fan. That's Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura from the original Star Trek, talking to NPR. And I'm thinking, a Trekker, you know. And I turn, and there was the face of Dr. Martin Luther King smiling at me and walking toward me. And he said, yes, Miss Nichols, I am your greatest fan. I am that Trekkie. It's easy to forget that the original Star Trek series, which now seems pretty campy 50 years later, was doing something pretty progressive and groundbreaking in its casting. There was the Japanese-American actor playing Lieutenant Sulu, not that long after World War II. There was a Russian crew member, Ensign Chekhov, at the height of the Cold War. And like five minutes after the Civil Rights Act passed, before the women's liberation movement, an officer played by an African-American woman. I thanked him, and I think I said something like, Dr. King, I wish I could be out there marching with you. He said, no, no, no. No, you don't understand. We don't need you on the, to march. You are marching. You are reflecting what we are fighting for. For the first time, we are being seen the world over as we should be seen. He says, do you understand that this is the only show that my wife Coretta and I will allow our little children to stay up and watch? I was speechless. Dr. King was not the last American leader to celebrate Star Trek's positive influence. I think Star Trek, like any good story, says that we're all complicated and we all got a little bit of Spock and a little bit of <laughs> Kirk and a little bit of Scotty and maybe some Klingon in us, right? In his case, by the way, a lot of Spock. This hour on Studio 360, we are looking back on the half-century-long legacy of Star Trek, six different television series plus an animated spinoff, plus the 13 feature films so far. We'll be hearing from some of its various creators and talking about how it's influenced generations of fans, from the science nerds who grew up to be engineers or astronauts to the dreamers and stoners who grew up to write for TV and the movies. To start, we will look at the newest TV iteration, Star Trek Discovery, which started last fall. To catch me up on the new series and explain how it fits within the whole Star Trek canon, I've asked in Marissa Martinelli, 
who is a culture writer for Slate and a pretty serious Star Trek fan. Marissa, welcome to Studio 360. Thanks so much for having me. So were you a fan of Star Trek growing up? Um, I started watching in college, um, and I was a skeptic, a Star Trek skeptic, uh, because I had only ever seen sort of bits and pieces of the original series and sort of the silly bits and pieces. So the William Shatner overacting or episodes where they try to steal Spock's brain. Right. Sort of the worst of Trek. So I went in very skeptical, but I started watching The Next Generation. Which is the one with uh, Picard and Patrick Stewart from the 80s and 90s. Yes. That went on for seven seasons. um, And I sort of sampled a little bit of that. And I was a fan and I liked it. So, uh, and and that was it. And okay, I get it now. I will join the cult. Basically, uh, it's a a solid show. I mean, if you're a sci-fi fan, uh, that definitely has its appeal. But it's also just a solid drama. It's almost a soap opera in space. Well, as somebody who was the perfect age to like the original series when it came on the air, i.e. 12, I just find it so remarkable that here we are still talking about new episodes of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's weird to me. So does the fact that it has been around forever and then and and you discovered it not, you know, a decade ago or whatever, did its venerableness, was that part of the appeal? Was that irrelevant, good, bad? It made it a little daunting to get into, and I think that's part of why I was resistant for so long, because you don't know which version you're going to start with, because there's the original series, there's Next Generation, which is the first 90s iteration, and then there are the two spinoff shows from Next Generation, Deep Space Nine and Voyager. But what about Enterprise, which I didn't even know about until I did the research for this conversation? Everyone forgets poor Enterprise, the early 2000s. Right. Uh, that was one too, though, right? That was. It was short-lived compared to the other shows. It was ran for just a few seasons. And among all of these series, the original, uh, Captain Picard, the three spinoffs, the new one, how do they all rank? What's the, what's the best as far as uh, in, in the Martinelli uh, universe of Trek? <laughs> well, I think uh, the original series and Next Generation are widely regarded as sort of the most beloved. Um, I have a soft spot in my heart That's for— like beloved. You. What are the best? <laughs> Voyager. I'm going to stand for Voyager right now. Um, Voyager was the first Star Trek to have a female captain— uh-huh. As the lead. Personal log, Stardate 48546.2. Our journey home is several weeks old now, and I have begun to notice in my crew and in myself a subtle change as the reality of our situation settles in. Uh, it's Kate Mulgrew as Catherine Janeway. Right. Now she's on Orange is the New Black. So Discovery. Uh, I-, I watched the first one because, you know, I liked Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, have you watched them all? I have. So you, I, I guess I have. So this new series fits into the larger Star Trek universe. How? It comes before it's Shatner in, and all that. Yes. It's set about 10 years before the original series. Uh-huh. But otherwise, it connects with all of the the history that has been established by those and other pieces of the franchise. So oh, yes, for sure. I mean, I actually interviewed the showrunners of Discovery and a few of the writers about, before the show had come out, about how they were working within the established Star Trek canon right. to make sure that their show didn't violate any anything that comes before or that comes after. And, you know, Trekkies are a notoriously detail-oriented bunch. Yes. So, but they use that to their advantage. They used um, fan resources online. Right. They hired, you know, super fans in the writer's room, um, Akiva Goldsman, uh, Kirsten Beyer, who has written some of the Voyager spinoff novels. They have a very pro-Trek team. Right. So they're all experts. So they are pretty careful about doing that? 
They are, but they also, and I talked to them about this quite a bit, they also have to take risks in order to make a lively and interesting show that's going to be surprising. So the biggest risk they took going in was to make the main character, uh, whose name is Michael Burnham, but she's actually a woman, played by Sinequa Martin-Green. Um, she is Who's great. Who is fantastic. She carries the show. Yeah. She's wonderful. Um, she is the adopted sister of Spock from the original series. Uh, Spock, of course, is the most iconic character in all of Star Trek. So to throw in an adopted sister who had never been mentioned, mentioned. before, a human adopted sister, I should note, you know, people were buzzing about it. A human and black them. adopted sister. Correct, yes. Does the fact that there is all this canonical hoo-ha, do you think, d- d- does that drive away non-geeks? I mean, you were able to penetrate and become a geek as you say, late in life. Hmm, I may have had uh, geek tendencies that helped me get into it. Um, I I think that, yes, it can be intimidating. But I also think that if you introduce someone with the right episode, you can make them a lifelong fan. Um, This really does seem like a moment for Star Trek. The movies are going great guns. There's this new show. We're talking about it. People like it. And then there's suddenly, the last, like, weeks, there have been references everywhere. Like, one of the best episodes of the new season of Black Mirror on mm-hmm. Netflix. USS Callister. Captain, sensors indicate an escape pod ejected from Baldak's ship before detonation. He's escaping with the crystal. You want me to plot up a suit course, Captain? No. We'll let him go. For now. It's great decision-making, Captain. Three cheers for Captain Daly. Hip, hip. Hooray! Hip, hip. You saw that? I did see. Oh, for sure. As soon yeah. as Black Mirror dropped, I was like, I got to watch the Star yeah, Trek episode. Yeah. And uh, what'd you think? It was great. The big, you know, 60s hair. Yes. Um, the miniskirts, the aliens that are just like hilariously fake looking. And and the Kirk character just kissing uh, all of his uh, officers in, in this ridiculous stylized way. Right. I mean he's, the whole idea is that it's this fantasy that this geek has created for himself. Right. And he aspires to be a Kirk-like figure and like some Star Trek fans fundamentally misunderstands the character and sees him as, you know, a womanizer and a brute as opposed to a much more complex character on the show, right. which people forget because William Shatner's acting can be, you know, a little bit wild. Yeah, Shatner-ish. Um, there's also uh, Seth MacFarlane's new show on Fox, which is not animated like his other shows. It's live action. It's called The Orville. You're on, sir. Unidentified vessel. This is the USS Orville. Please respond. What do you want? Your course is about to take you directly into the path of a spatial anomaly we've discovered. We recommend you change your heading immediately. Garage Kaluga! Anybody speak Horbalak? The direct translation is, you can shove it up your... Okay, got it, got it. Do you wish to hear the rest of the translation? No, no, I, I, I get the gist. It's billed as a parody, but it is more of a loving homage. I went into the show expecting, you know, Seth MacFarlane nonstop humor and gags. Uh, He has the goods. He's clearly a Star Trek fan, and he has brought in some members of the cast from previous series. He has Star Trek veterans directing his episodes. Really? So I should watch it? It's it's very hit or miss. Yeah. But Seth MacFarlane, whatever you think of him, is clearly a devoted Star Trek fan who who really truly appreciates what makes it great. 
Marissa Martinelli, thank you so much. Uh, you, you can now be our permanent Star Trek expert. Should we ever revisit Star Trek? And I'm sure we will since, you know, it's a half a century in running. Gladly. See you when the next one comes Indeed. out. Live long and prosper. You can read Marissa Martinelli regularly on Slate's Browbeat blog, and you can watch Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access. Ronald D. Moore is one of the sci-fi screenwriters in Hollywood. After writing for three different Star Trek series during the 1990s, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, as well as two of the Star Trek movies, he went on to write for the series Roswell, Battlestar Galactica, Caprica, and Outlander. But growing up in the 1970s in a little town in Northern California, Ron Moore was a pretty standard-issue military brat. Not really a sci-fi geek at all, until a certain TV show changed his life. Be the captain of this enterprise, Mr. Spock. Find a logical reason for sparing the Hawkins and make it stick. Star Trek was originally on the air on NBC from uh, 1966 to uh, early 1969. Uh, three seasons, 79 episodes, and I didn't really start watching it until uh, 1973, 1974. So it was in strip syndication, where it was on five days a week, which was even better, because then I could watch it every day after school. We're human beings with the blood of a million savage years on our hands. But we can stop it. We can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. I was a Kirk fan. I mean, I thought Kirk was, was the ultimate hero, and I wanted to be Kirk. Uh, he, he just, he had it all. He had a sense of humor, and yet there was this sort of loneliness of command that they always played, and there was something noble about that, and something self-sacrificing, and he always, you know, his only mistress was his ship, and there, I, there was something about that sort of romantic idea of a man and his ship that I always loved and, and just kind of spoke to me as a young boy. Welcome home, Captain. I started pirating my own episodes. I had an audio recorder. Uh, you know, a standard audio cassette recorder that my dad had that he let me borrow, and I would set it next to the television speaker and record episodes. And many a night, I can remember drifting off to bed, listening to episodes of the Starship Enterprise. And to this day, I'll watch an episode from the original series, say, and I'll know exactly what sound cue is coming up, but I might be surprised by what's actually on screen, because I kind of remember it like a radio show. Correct to Enterprise. Scotty? Scott here, Captain. We're ready to beam up. I don't know that I was aware of the nerdy, trekky kind of stereotype for quite some time, mercifully so. I was in college, and I had a Captain Kirk poster in my, in my dorm room, and people started going, oh, he's one of those geeks. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, everybody likes Star Trek, don't you? I left Cornell my senior year. I sort of flunked out, sort of. <laughs> when you stop going to class completely, they call it flunking out. <laughs> they, they ask you to leave. So I left. And uh, I just sort of started life over when I didn't have a, a, a future anymore. And I moved to L.A. and was sleeping on a friend's floor and taking a bunch of odd jobs. And eventually I started dating this girl who found out that I was a fan of the original Star Trek series. And she had a connection to Star Trek The Next Generation, which was in its second season of production at that point. And she said, oh, you know, well, I know people over at Next Gen, and I could get you a tour of the sets. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then I just sat down, and I took a shot for no real reason. I just decided I was going to write an episode. And I sat down and wrote an episode of Next Generation, 
and I tucked it under my arm and I brought it with me on the set tour. And I conned the guy that was giving me the set tour into reading it, and he liked it. And it turned out he was one of Gene Roddenberry's assistants. And suddenly I was there and I was writing for Star Trek, and I wrote the adventures of the Enterprise week after week. I stood on its bridge, I sat in its captain's chair, and eventually I would kill Captain Kirk. I wrote, uh, co-wrote Star Trek Generations, and in that movie we killed Captain Kirk, and you know I literally killed my childhood hero. Did we do that? And make a difference. Oh yes, we made a difference. Thank you. At least I could do. It's a very deep, tender place on some level. I really wanted to do that, to write the last chapter, because then that made him human and made him one of us, and somehow it made him real. Eric Malinsky produced that story for us in 2010. Ronald Moore is now developing a space drama for Apple TV. You heard how Ronald Moore had complicated feelings about the fate of Captain Kirk. And so did Captain Kirk himself. I spoke with William Shatner about how he's come to terms with the role that, in his 30s, forever defined him. Well, I've directed a uh, documentary called The Captains. Uh, Really uh, interesting documentary I got to make by examining the actors who played all six captains, what unified them, what disparate things about them. And I had an epiphany in the films, part of the documentary, when doing research on uh, Patrick Stewart. He was saying how important and how seriously he took the, the role of Captain Picard. Saturday afternoon, I would pick up next week's work and I would start working. I would learn Monday's work more or less learn Tuesday's work, get really familiar with Wednesday's work, and be looking over Thursday and Friday. That was the first season. I didn't go on like that for seven years, but it was because I was terrified that I wouldn't be prepared. And I realized in that moment that in the last many years, I've been sort of holding my hands up in defense of what I perceive to be perhaps derision of, hey, beat me up, Scotty. What do they mean? What are they doing? I thought it was pretty good, but maybe they're laughing at it. I better go along with it, sort of in my psyche. And I then it was part of me, and I sort of, that was my response. Beat me up, Scotty. Hey, get off me. What I learned and what I realized in the documentary is, hey, it's a compliment, and I should answer them as such. So I should say I would if I could. That is William Shatner. Even if you don't know much about Star Trek, you probably know the main villains that Kirk and company faced. These big, grisly-looking guys with giant ridges on their foreheads. The bad guy in this scene sounds like he's choking on something, but the subtitles tell us that he's saying, Stand by on torpedoes. Fire. The first words of the first Star Trek movie in 1979 are spoken by a Klingon ship commander. 
in Klingon. How did this come to be? Erica Okrent is a linguist with a PhD from the University of Chicago, and as far as I know, the first and only certified Klingon speaker I've ever met. We talked about her book from 2009, In the Land of Invented Languages, that looks at everything from Klingon to Esperanto. And I asked her whose idea it was to give Klingons, these fictional creatures, an actual language. It was the producers of the third Star Trek movie. They had uh, hired Mark Okrand, who's a ling- who was a linguist, to figure out how to dub over some dialogue for the second Star Trek movie that they had filmed in English and wanted it to be in Vulcan. So he performed that dub over for them. It worked out for well. For non-geeks, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Spock's language. Right, the Vulcan, vo- Vulcan the Spock, Spock's language. And so when it came time for the third movie and they wanted Klingon, they... They had him come back and said, we want to do a lot of Klingon dialogue. Would you make some up for us? And then he organized it so that he could keep track of what he was doing. Uh, but it ended up being the type of system that then could be learned by people who, who felt like trying to learn it. And, and at this point, how complete is it as a language? I, I assume it has been added to by fans. Well, the fans who are very into the Klingon language are very strict about language authority. So, Okrand is the last word, the academy, and the canon when it comes to Klingon. And the fact that his last name bears some resemblance to yours is entirely coincidental, I assume. We've we've decided that we're distant cousins of some sort. Where the hell is he? We've got another clip here from another Star Trek movie. This is from Star Trek The Search for Spock. Commander Krug, this is Valkris. What the hell is it? Now, those were some Klingons from Star Trek The Search for Spock speaking Klingon. Obviously, in the case of Valkris, a bilingual Klingon who could speak English as well. And, and you, you joined them. You learned how to speak Klingon. Yes, it turned into this challenge for myself. This was, was a complicated grammar. It didn't feel much different from learning Hungarian, which I had gotten into as a linguist. And so uh, I, I decided I was going to pass the, the test that they give to confer a language ability status on you. And uh, I went through with it. Do we have any idea how many Klingon speakers there are in the world? There's, I would say there's, uh, you know, maybe six or seven hundred who can do a little bit with Klingon, who can pick up a dictionary, put together some phrases. But um, there's maybe 20 or 30 who can have a live, off the top of their head, rolling conversation with, without much stopping. So, uh, which are the same numbers that, that speak certain dying languages, actual yes, languages. Yeah, yeah, there was a, a headline in The Onion uh, um, a while ago saying uh, Klingon speakers now outnumber Navajo speakers, uh, which which isn't true, but only because Navajo just happens to be one that actually is spoken by very many people. So. Let's talk about some other uh, artificial languages. Uh, here are Liv Tyler and Viggo Mortensen in Fellowship of the Ring speaking Elvish. <laughs> That's Elvish from Fellowship of the Ring. Now, that's a more of a romance-language-sounding language, and it sounds a little bit like they're faking it. Are, are, <laughs> are they speaking Elvish? 
They are. Um, they are speaking a sort of reconstructed uh, Elvish when Tolkien didn't provide enough of a grammar or a dictionary for you to sit down and construct your own dialogue. So you have to sort of go back through his writings and, and, and pick out words and try to deduce what's going on, which is what a linguist named David Salo did in order to generate dialogue for the movie. Uh, there are, though, some Tolkien purists who think he went a little too far. He filled in gaps that we don't know what he, Tolkien— He, the movie linguist. Uh, the movie linguist, yes. He, he filled in gaps because they had to say the lines that aren't attested in, the, in Tolkien's books. But, yeah, he had to in order to create the dialogue. Because that. Tolkien just did it, did it passingly in the, in the descriptions in Lord of the Rings. Yeah? Uh, he had it all worked out for himself, but he, he only sort of published it and put it forth in his uh, fiction. So you have to look for it there. And do you and, and other linguists feel as though this this trend in pop culture and movie making of, of creating these artificial languages is good for the field, that it's interesting young people in studying language? Uh, I think it is if they get interested in, in it and they are intrigued by trying to find the system. When you just have a gobbledygook on screen, uh, you hear it, and then there's nothing more to say about it. Um, but if you create this little puzzle that some people might get into solving, then they might also get into uh, natural languages and puzzling out real languages. Now, our final movie scene is from the movie Incubus, which is a very old movie that I doubt if many, if any of our listeners have ever seen. It was a 1965 film starring William Shatner before he was known as Captain Kirk. And it's entirely in Esperanto with subtitles. Here is William Shatner with his supernatural love interest, Alison Ain. Chester, don't you? Me minutes, Chester, Vem. Gatuli Chiak from Havas Kuritz Pavon. The aspecto is a scribona. Fresh pura air or a vivigusman. Fia Oculo is a sclerai. That's a quiet interlude from the movie Incubus, starring William Shatner in 1965. Now, that's in Esperanto, for which I have a soft spot, because around the time that movie was made, my mother decided to subscribe to an Esperanto magazine, thinking that me and my brothers and sisters would somehow benefit from learning, uh, uh, getting some passing knowledge of Esperanto. What is the story behind this film? What a kind of quixotic uh, enterprise to make a movie in Esperanto. Well, yeah, this movie is just so strange and uh, so of its time, the black and white. The, it's a story about good and evil. It's all in this mysterious place. Um, and uh, they wanted to have it in a, a different language in order to make it even weirder. So... Uh, they didn't and want they to succeeded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I love how uh, you know Shatner speaking Esperanto still has that singular inflection that he does. Uh, although Esperantists, um, they appreciate the movie exists, but it's it's not really good Esperanto. It's not well pronounced, according to a lot of uh, Esperantists. Well, and Esper there are a lot of Esperantists. Esperanto really had a, a heyday, and there are thousands of speakers. You write fascinatingly to me about some people whose first language really was Esperanto, basically children of people who met at Esperanto conferences. Yeah, when you have a, a Polish mother and a Brazilian father who meet in an Esperanto conference and don't speak each other's language, then Esperanto is the language of their home and the kids grow up as native speakers. And this isn't the limit of, of invented languages. There's an amazing number of them. Yes, uh, there's. It's been going on for you know at least nine hundred years. People generally 
looking at natural language and seeing all this irregularity and ambiguity and thinking, you know, we could do better than this. Let's let's get rid of all that and and engineer a language that will you will only be able to speak the truth in or that will unite the world in peace or that will make us think better, more logically. Uh, and for the most part, they've been failing rather spectacularly. Very, very Star Trekky, in its sort of utopian, me- mechanistic idea that we can make the world a better place by means of, of a, a new, better language. Yeah, so we, we've invented better ways of transporting ourselves across water and generating food, and why not uh, a better way of uh, of using language? Uh, but language is, is pretty resistant to human attempts to impose uh, control on it. So before you go, before I let you go, can you say this is Studio 360 in Klingon and Esperanto? Uh, sure. In Esperanto, it would be Chitiu estas ateliero tricent sestek. And in Klingon... And maybe William Shatner is the one person out there as a presumed speaker of both Klingon and Esperanto who just <laughs> understood what you said. Yeah, he, he might be the only one. <laughs> Erica Okrent, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Erica Okrent's the author of the book In the Land of Invented Languages. It's amazing to me how often when I talk to scientists or technologists about how they got inspired as a kid, there's a subject that comes up again and again and again. Astronomers, computer scientists, engineers, you can't avoid the subject even if you wanted to. Space, the final frontier. So in 2014, we asked Julia Weatherall to explain. For two years, the Juno probe has been hurtling through space on its way to Jupiter at a mind-boggling 15 miles a second. Almost warp speed, right? To get from here to the nearest star at Juno's speed would take about 30,000 years. Or maybe not. 30,000 years ago, we humans were inventing the bow and arrow, slapping some paint on some walls in caves in France, and domesticating this vicious animal that people now carry around in little bags on the Upper West Side called dogs. That's K.E. Savick Ford, an astrophysicist at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Even if we're a long way off from building a warp drive, Savick will be the first to tell you how important Star Trek is to people who study outer space. Because way before she got a PhD and started observing supermassive black holes for a living, she was a girl who named herself after a Vulcan. Well, Mr. Savick, are you going to stay with the sinking ship? Permission to speak candidly, sir. Kirstie Alley played Savick in The Wrath of Khan. I don't believe this was a fair test of my command abilities. There was no way to win. I love the character Savick because she was a Vulcan and she was rational and she was calm and she was smart and she was a scientist. Trouble with the nebula, sir, is all that static discharging gas clouds her tactical display. Visual won't function and shields will be useless. And I went away to camp when I was 12, and I realized that I had the opportunity to say who I was. And so when I started to introduce myself to people, I said, hi, I'm Savick. Star Trek went on the air in the late 1960s, 
Earthlings already had gone into orbit, and we were getting ready to actually land somewhere on the moon. Space, the final frontier. So a generation of scientists got all fired up by the fantasy and the reality of space travel at the same time. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission. And remember what the first space shuttle was called in the 1970s? America's first space shuttle, the Enterprise. They lifted off from a strip in the Mojave Desert, climbing into the morning air to make a bit of history today. By 2013, let me phrase it this way, I literally envisioned that I would be retiring on the moon. Candy Torres is a former software engineer for the International Space Station in Houston, which was as close as she could get to working for Starfleet. For the International Space Station, the crew uses terms like science officer. This is Commander Spock, science officer. Like Savick, Torres has her Star Trek namesake, the character Bolana Torres, who's the chief engineer on Star Trek Voyager. I could modify a series of anodyne relays. She's half human and half Klingon. And in my mind, that human half, she has to be Puerto Rican. They could act as a sort of regulator to make the warp plasma compatible with robots' energy matrix. I started watching Star Trek right from the very beginning in 1966. Sonia Sotomayor said television showed us worlds and possibilities beyond where we lived. And we're both Puerto Rican. She lived in South Bronx. I lived in North Bronx. We're almost the same age. Technology and the future were positive. The world would be better. What's it like out there in the galaxy? We're on a thousand planets and spreading out. We cross fantastic distances and everything's alive, Cochrane. Life everywhere, we estimate. There are millions of planets with intelligent life. It's the optimism of the show that makes Star Trek so important to scientists. Take this basic tenet of the Star Trek universe. In the 23rd century, any disease can be diagnosed in seconds with a single scan of a medical tricorder. She's a mute gem, no vocal cords. Today, there's a company offering $10 million to the people who can figure out how to make the tricorder a reality in our century. And some of the people working on this stuff have gotten close. If this sounds crazy, remember, we all walk around with a little piece of Star Trek in our pockets every day. Yeah, my name is uh, Martin Cooper. I'm uh, in the wireless business. Which is one way of saying he invented the cell phone. We actually knew that the communicator of Star Trek was possible from the moment that we saw it. It just took a few years. In 1973, Cooper and his team at Motorola built the first wireless phone. Think about it. The communicator could only talk to other people who were members of the Enterprise crew. Kirk Enterprise. Scott here, sir. We're beaming up. Notify transporter room. If I really wanted to be imaginative, which I am, by the way, they should have been able to talk to anybody in the universe. Don't you think? So you've got your communicator. But 45 years after the first moon landing, it seems like we're only getting farther away from building a real starship. President Obama intends to switch to commercial contracts to launch astronauts into space. That means NASA would be out of the business of doing that. For Americans... With no manned spaceflight program in the U.S. anymore, how are we ever going to get beamed up anywhere? People who have degrees in astrophysics can go off and make 
a gajillion dollars on Wall Street because it's the same analytical and quantitative tools that we use to analyze what's going on around a black hole also apply to analyzing stocks and bond prices. The problem with pushing the frontier of science is that it's not all rational. You need to listen to conflicting impulses to come up with creative solutions, not just folk and logic. It's also not about who's the biggest hero or the best fighter pilot. It's about how people are better when they work together. That's the moral of Star Trek. There's Spock as that rationalist who's going to say, we have to do it this way, Captain, and Bones the pessimist saying, we can't do anything, Captain, and, you know, Kirk going out there and saying, we are going to go out there and we are going to do it and we're going to do awesome. Well, we're doing everything as possible. Bones, I want the impossible checked out, too. If you are purely rational, you would never start a problem that is going to take you months to solve. People who view science as strictly a rational enterprise don't know what science is really like. Instruments register only those things they're designed to register. Space still contains infinite unknowns. Remember, the enterprise launches in the 23rd century. We've got time. We'll get there. That story was by Julia Weatherell. If you've ever visited the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, you probably remember Lindbergh's Spirit of St. Louis and all the different historic spacecraft. And now, maybe the most famous spaceship of all time is displayed there as well. Richard Paul has the story of how a vessel goes where no giant prop has gone before. At the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, they have curators for all the things you'd expect. You know, telescopes, missiles, planetary science, space shuttles. They're all over on that side. On this side is something completely different. The collection of curator Margaret Weidekamp. What you see here is our collection of toy ray guns. Who else gets to say that at work every day? Everything from a Buck Rogers water pistol, the Wilma Deering girls version of the gun that came out a year later, as well as cap guns. We also have plastic toys. Margaret's title is curator of the social and cultural dimensions of spaceflight. What she has is more than 4,000 pieces of space-related ephemera. And her Buck Rogers XZ-31 rocket pistol isn't even the coolest piece of super nerdy space stuff in her collection. Margaret's principal obsession these days is an object that may resonate more deeply than anything else in the museum's collection, at least for the generation that grew up when America was going to the moon. Space, the final frontier. For the past 17 months, in a room inside a Smithsonian facility in Virginia, Margaret and a team of conservators have been working on that very ship, the one you saw fly by whenever you heard those words on TV. So this is it. This is the studio model of the Star Trek Starship Enterprise. The Enterprise? I should have known. I bet Jim Kirk himself hauled the old gal out of mothballs to come looking for me. It hasn't been in mothballs exactly, but kind of close. The Smithsonian got the ship six years after NBC canceled the original Star Trek in 1968. They had it out on the main museum floor for a while, but for the past 14 years, it's been hanging in the gift shop. 
Margaret said they heard from a lot of Star Trek fans who considered it a sign of disrespect that the Enterprise was hanging there next to the tchotchkes and refrigerator magnets, and she wanted to move it. I had been looking for a new place for it for some time, but it needed to be a permanent place where it would be well contextualized with other objects. She's finally found that place, and it's the most eminent one in the museum, the entryway of the Milestones of Flight Gallery, where they have all of American history's most important planes and rockets, the very first thing that 7 million people a year see as soon as they walk into the museum. This way, she says, We could put the Enterprise model next to the lunar module, which is in some ways a contemporary spacecraft. We could put it next to the Telstar flight spare, which is the first telecommunications satellite and begins this world of television and communication. Well, that's coming soon, but now it's here, lying on a workroom table. I'd love to tear this baby apart. Well, they have. If you're looking at the table, we have the saucer right in the front, and behind that on the table, we have the long, thin engines. And you'll notice that the engineering hull or the secondary hull is actually missing. It's on a cart that's separate uh, because there's cracking in between the wooden pieces because the adhesive that they used has aged. You probably figured the Enterprise model was made out of plastic or metal. In fact, it was made out of wood. You'll see, actually, that the engineering hull is constructed like a barrel out of individual staves. It's actually bigger than you'd likely imagined it would be. The Enterprise model is as big as a banquet table. And... um, As we look at the starboard side of the model, you'll notice that it's really well detailed because that was the side that faced toward the camera all the time. And though you've probably never realized it, you've only seen this side of it. That's because the other side doesn't look like a starship that would haul you from galaxy to galaxy. It kind of looks like someone's unfinished woodshop project. The inside of the model is largely hollow because that's where the wires would run through. And so as you look in, you can see the raw ends of pieces of plex that have been hammered through the secondary hull and not really finished off in any particular way because what they needed was just to be able to put a light source inside that hull and it would then shine out through all of these windows creating the effect. An illusion placed in our minds by this planet's inhabitants. We are working on a whole series of structural and aesthetic issues. The cracking and crazing on the top of the saucer paint, which is original, and you can see that, really looks a lot like what you would see in a fine art painting. For that, we're really just trying to clean and stabilize. Most people think of the National Air and Space Museum as that place you go on your eighth grade trip to Washington, where you take a selfie in front of the space toilet or Neil Armstrong's flight suit. And... It is that, but bottom line is, it's also a place for learning. Learn it, Shana. All your people must learn before you can reach for the stars. While it's principally a history museum, they also teach a lot of science and engineering here. One of the things I want you to notice on the airplane, um, which is really important, was that they were bicycle makers. And that's museum educator Beth Wilson standing in front of the Wright Brothers airplane. And that's not a model. It's the actual plane they flew at Kitty Hawk in 1903, the first heavier-than-air machine ever to fly. To create lift, you have to have an airfoil. And an airfoil is a very particular shape. And the Wright brothers tested a lot of different airfoil shapes. 
and you can actually see the airfoil used in the wing of the airplane. So Science, she says, is what the museum is really pushing now. Because STEM education is so important. So we try and wrap some science, technology, engineering, and math around everything that we do. And that's easy to do here because you can demonstrate principles next to real, honest-to-goodness scientific artifacts. The rule of thumb for the museum is that if it flew and came back, we have it. For something like the lunar module, the Hubble Space Telescope, they didn't come back. So we either have the engineering backups or the program ended and we have it. Uh, So it's all real. Now, it's one thing to teach astronomy using the engineering model of the Hubble Space Telescope. But how do I put this? Um, The Starship Enterprise never really existed. So can you use that to teach? Margaret Weidekamp did before she was hired at the Smithsonian. I had been teaching classes on space history and science fiction because I saw those topics as very connected. And when she says teaching classes, that's not at some Star Wars convention or space nerd fantasy camp. It was undergraduate history students when she was a postdoc at Cornell. So yes, you can use it to teach. Beth Wilson does it all the time. When the science is there and it's good, and the imagination is there and it's good, then the science fiction is great, and you can use all that to teach. Many myths are based on truth, Captain. You look at something like um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and you look at that space station. You know, they wanted to create gravity, so they really looked at the science and how to make that spin and how that would create gravity. So that's really good science. Star Trek is loaded with really good science, too, and maybe that's one of the reasons why it's inspired generations of astronauts and space scientists. I was very much a Star Trek fan, and I like to say that I watched in the 60s when it first came on. That's astronaut Mae Jemison, the first African-American woman in space, talking on C-SPAN. I thought the show was very wonderful because it put women in non-traditional roles. So Lieutenant Uhura was maybe the first woman that you saw every week on television who worked in a technical field. Security sweeps of all decks are negative, Mr. Spock. No evidence of intruder. Also, she was African. I since met Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, and we've become friends. She also was very instrumental in recruiting the first women and minority astronauts for NASA. You'll find this sense of inspiration in the Smithsonian, too. The museum listens carefully to fans of Star Trek. That's Margaret Weidekamp again. In part because we're also fans of Star Trek. And in fact, uh, 20 years ago, the very first gift that my husband ever gave me was a little Lieutenant Worf figurine that he picked up when he was in Los Angeles. And so being able to put those kinds of cultural objects on display allows the museum to really deepen the stories of the science and technology by drawing forward the stories of the people who have just been fans of fictional visions of what going into space might look like. Okay, so here's where we're going to put the Enterprise. So as soon as you walk in, you'll see the Enterprise, and then you'll open up to the Boeing milestones of Flight Hall, where you can see the lunar module, the spirit of St. Louis is in there, Spaceship One, so there's a bunch of cool stuff. And so, with its new prominent place at the Smithsonian, it nearly guarantees that for years to come, space science fiction and Star Trek will continue to... Live long and prosper.
Richard Paul produced that story for us in 2016. You can see pictures of that Starship Enterprise being restored at pri.org slash studio360. And you can see the finished thing on display at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360. I was in a widow support group, and I don't think I really ever cried in the widow support group. How seeing just the right thing at just the right time can make all the difference. But I'd watch this movie, and I would cry every time. The surprising comfort of a sappy movie. Next time on Studio 360.